0: Let us pray. Um, dear Lord, uh, thank you for this day. Um, thank you for allowing us to be here. And thank you for just being good. Um, you allow us to come and worship, and you allow us to be healthy, and you allow us to be able to stand in your presence today. Uh, as we worship, Lord, open our hearts, open our ears. Um, let us do the things that we hear. And yeah, let us do this in the most healthiest, safest way possible. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, praise team. Uh, and thank you, all the volunteers who are helping us reopen. Um, really, I can't say thank you enough. And then thank you for those of you uh, who are joining us online. It's so good to see you this morning and have you again, uh, that you're joining us uh, for this time of worship. Um, the pads are still on. Um, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 5, verses 33 through 39. Uh, We are reading in the NASB. If you do not have your Bibles, if you're here with us, it'll be on the screen behind me. And then, of course, online, it'll also be on the screen behind me, so, um... Luke chapter five verses thirty three through thirty nine. If you are a regular here, you know that we've been kind of going through the book of Ruth one by one, but we're gonna get back to reading the text as a whole. So we read Luke chapter five verses thirty-three through thirty-nine and then get right into it. Again, Luke chapter five, verses thirty-three through thirty-nine. And they said to him, The disciples of John often fast and offer prayers. The disciples of the Pharisees also do the same, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, you cannot make the attendants of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? But the days will come and when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in those days. And he was also telling them a parable. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise he will both tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise the new wine will burst and the skins and... Uh, Burst the skins and it will be spilled out, and then the skins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins, and no one, after drinking old wine, wishes for new, for he says, the old is good enough. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now you may have heard the saying, a new year, a new you, or new year, new me. For some of you who are into hair, it may be new year, new hair, or new hair, new you, so on and so forth. The whole idea is that with fresh starts and fresh things, You need to have the accompanying things to match. The old is no more. The new is where we're going. So here we go. Let's get on with it. And as we begin our summer series in Jesus' parables, it is fitting to begin with these words, Jesus' first ever parable, because Jesus is also getting at this idea when he says that new wine must be put into new and fresh wineskins. Hence, new wine, new wineskins. Well, we begin here also because our journey throughout what's been a crazy 2021 that we've never, ever would have expected ever, we've kind of set the stage for all of this. If you remember, we journeyed to the book of Joshua because we felt that we were on the verge of something, a promised land, something new, that we were, like the Israelites, bound to get a promised land of sorts. And I don't think it's too far of a stretch to say that what we've been walking through in terms of this pandemic is a wilderness A wandering, awaiting, and anticipating for an entry into a promised land of sorts. Through Judges, we saw that God clearly spoke that we have a need to put away our idols, our sins, and choose Yahweh. That God is often a behind-the-scenes God who will show himself to those people, as we saw in the book of Ruth, calling us to be Ruth's and Boazes. We saw, again, in the book of Ruth, that we would be people whose hearts burn for the poor, burn for the alien, that we be people of excellence and integrity, people who will abandon and risk it all to take the greatest story of redemption the world has ever known and to show people that, indeed, this is the story that they can live. Because the greatest desire of our hearts is to be known, to get a name be known and to be loved by Yahweh and by Jesus. As I said before, our hope isn't that we get back to the normal, we get back in this building, we don't have this weird setup. For those of you who are going to be coming later, you'll see how weirdly it's set up, that that's not the goal. The goal isn't to go back to what we used to, the goal is that God would make us a new people, a new church, a new body, an ever fresh wineskin for an ever fresh wine. Now, you may remember from last year that the parables, the reason why Jesus spoke 47 of them, use them so often is because though on the surface they seem really familiar, they seem like they're really easy to understand. It's an idea that sounds familiar to you. They are actually meant to shock the system, scandalize you, completely disorient our assumed and normal and old ways of thinking and being and acting and speaking, so on and so forth, and then reorient them around Jesus' ever new and full wine a new way of thinking, being, speaking, and so on. So no wonder then his first ever parable says, a new wine, new wine skins. So with that in mind, if you are thinking that you understand this parable, then you have to be ready to be shook a little today. Because it's not just a simple new something, a new accompanying something, but something altogether different. So let's jump in and see what God has to speak to us today. Let me give you a little bit of background, because as you know, everything comes with a little bit of background in Scripture. And so here's what's going on. It starts in verse 17 on the one day. All of the events from 17, all the 39 happens apparently in one day, and so we start there. Jesus' first miracle was ever turning water into wine at the wedding of Cana. Wedding? Wedding of Cana. In his first parable, he says the new wine must be put into new wine skins. It's fitting because in the miracle, what he's doing is he's declaring that he has come to make something new. Something that wasn't into something that is now new. Water cannot become wine no matter what you do to it, but then he makes water into wine. And of course, in this first parable, he says the newness that he is creating simply cannot be held in old categories, old programs, old traditions, old institutions, and philosophies and the sort. Now, here's the context of the parable as we go through, okay? The so Carable starts with the story of the paralytic and his four friends who carry them, uh, carry the paralytic to Jesus to try to get in. And then they tear the hole in the roof. You made the story um, from here either or Mark 2. And then, of course, after that all happens, Jesus forgives the sins of the paralytic And then the religious elite around them are really, really angry because they're saying only God can forgive sins. And they're right about that, but they just don't know what is going on. Then after this episode, then Jesus calls Levi, who later becomes Matthew, who is a tax collector, to be one of his disciples. And of course, Levi takes the call and he jumps right in. You may know that tax collectors then are basically traitors and the worst of the worst in the eyes of the Jews and particularly the religious elite. And because Levi is so overwhelmed that he would be chosen by Jesus, which is something he would have never dreamt of, right? He goes and he throws Jesus a party. He, of course, invites friends because what's a party without some friends? And, of course, all of his friends are also tax collectors because tax collectors didn't have any non-tax collecting friends because they were kind of an exclusive group, not by choice, because no one else would befriend them. And then because they're having a party, of course, they eat together. It would be a no-no not to do so. But in the eyes of the religious elite, eating with sinners is a huge no-no because it's more like becoming family and not just sharing a meal. But here's what the elite are saying throughout this whole process. They're saying, wait, hey, whoa, 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 Jesus, whoa. You can't be with them. They're sinners. They're unclean. They're not devoted. They're not righteous. They're not trying right, to be holy. Like, right. what are you doing, bro? And the idea is this, essentially, since God is a holy God, then all of his people ought to be holy, which is the right idea. But the way they went about to handle, to make sure that this was the case, was they said that anyone who isn't good enough or holy enough then would need to go away. And they would need to go away until then they were ready to be fixed up and then come back when they were good enough. The whole idea can be summarized like this. Imagine a C or a D student getting into an Ivy. Then everyone at the school would be in uproar. Why? Because they bring the whole academic prestige and all that stuff of that school way, way, way down. Or it's like letting a homeless person be a member at a very elite country club. Maybe in, in the Oaks, you know, country, whatever, River Oaks. Is that the area over there? Um, The really uh, nice area, right? Because it brings the entire elite status of the country club way down that you let somebody in like this. People would leave because you've just ruined our entire country club. You've ruined what we're all about, and that wouldn't be good. And then, of course, to this, Jesus then says, well, the sick need a doctor, not the healthy. So I've come to call sinners and not the righteous, but the religious elite aren't happy. So then they rebut Jesus' statement with this, and they say, "Um, the disciples of John the Baptist, they fast." And the disciples of Pharisees, they do too, but all y'all do is they just eat and drink. Like, what's going on? The issue is that religious people or hardcore Christians, devoted and faithful, are supposed to look a certain way, like this. But Jesus' disciples looked something like this, very different. They didn't fit the picture at all. And particularly because back in those days, the Pharisees had made it very commonplace to fast at least once a week. And the super-devoted ones fasted twice a week. All of this was just interesting because fasting was never required in the Old Testament. You will never find it anywhere. And only one time a year on the Day of Atonement on Yom Kippur were they meant to fast. But because fasting is indeed a good spiritual practice, they did what many of us sometimes do, is they take a really good practice, and they made it the sign of religious devotion, and then they became obsessed with it, and then it became the measuring stick for whether you were a good Christian or a good Jew back in those days or not. And if we're just being honest, we know a little thing or two about this. Most people who've been burned by the church haven't been burned for anything other than the fact that they were never religious enough. So Jesus responds with this Parable, and he says three things. The first thing he says is, I am Yahweh. I'm the bridegroom. I'm the wine. And because I'm the wine, then he says, I change everything. Nothing that comes in touch with me can ever stay the same. And because I change everything, then we need new wineskins. And those are things I'm going to look at today. What he says in response to all this in his parable that he says, I am God. I'm Yahweh. I change everything, and we need new wineskins. So let's just jump right in. I am Yahweh. Weddings back in Jesus' time, as you know or may know, is a big deal, way bigger than today's deal. Weddings today are pretty, pretty dope, but back in those days, they took it to a whole nother level. They were the celebration of all celebrations of the day. They lasted a minimum a week, sometimes a few weeks. And because weddings were such a big deal, they actually made a rule for weddings and only for weddings, and the rule went like this. All in the presence of the bridegroom are relieved of all religious observances that would lessen their joy. To know back in those days, bridegrooms were the big deal and not the bride, which is completely flipped in the day. Everything is about the bride today. But back in those days, it was the bridegroom that was the bigger deal. And so Jesus then takes this rule that he knows is around, and he basically says this. Well, um, the bridegroom, that's me, by the way. The bridegroom is here. You didn't know? And since the bridegroom is here, you, you know this law, don't you? It means that they and everyone don't need to fast right now. What he's saying is, newsflash, I am the bridegroom and the bridegroom is here. Can't y'all see what is going on? Now, before you uh, get past this, you have to understand that in the Old Testament, the person that was called the bridegroom, particularly in Isaiah and other chapters, like other uh, books, was Yahweh himself. Yahweh was known to be the person that was going to allure and woo and love unfaithful Israel and make Israel his bride. And so by Jesus saying this, he's saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Can't you see what's going on here? I'm not just anybody. I am Yahweh, the bridegroom. Now you have to sense how ridiculous this had to have sounded. It's way more ridiculous than had I seven years ago arriving here in Houston as a 29-year-old coming and being like, Hey, I got news. Shh, 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 don't tell nobody. If you know the story, I went to uh, Jean Gene and Jenny's house first that weekend. I said that it would be like me, like all we know at the dinner be like, Shh, I got a secret for you. I'm God. And if I made that proclamation in public, I probably would have been right out fired within the first week. And if I didn't get fired, then everyone would have believed that I would be God. And then this place would look very different, a.k.a. very terrible because I'm not God and I'm a very sinful human being. But that's the point. It's a big deal for someone to make this claim. Or imagine it like this. Imagine that President Trump tweeted that he was going to be at this service today or at our reopening because we're a big deal. I don't know, whatever. He's like, I'm going to be in Houston and do all these things. Everything would be different. This service would not be the same. Whatever measures of safety we had, we would amp it up a thousand. I hope our measures are as best as they can be. But we would try to find a way to make it better because, you know, the president's coming, so on and so forth. Or whatever president, whatever famous person, it doesn't really matter. But things would be different, would it not? I mean, how could it not? So Jesus is responding to the religious leaders and saying, look, 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 look. don't miss this, please. You're looking at all the wrong things. You're looking at your rules, your habits, your traditions, your programs, and all these things, but those aren't the things that matter anymore because I am what matters. I'm Yahweh, I'm here, and I am what matters. Don't get it twisted. And because I'm here, And because I'm Yahweh and I'm what matters, then I change everything. Now let's not miss that Jesus actually never puts down fasting or says that fasting is bad. That's never what Jesus does, so that's not the point. We're not saying any of those things. But what he is saying is this. If I'm Yahweh, and indeed I am, and because I'm here, then all of your old ways of thinking, all your old ways of feeling, all of your old ways of being and acting will be set aside. They have to be set aside because new ways of thinking, new ways of feeling, new ways of being, new ways of acting, and everything will begin to emerge because of my presence. Because of me, he says, nothing will ever be the same because I changed the game. We're not even playing the same game anymore. Now, if you take the first miracle of turning water into wine in this parable together, Jesus is basically saying, it's time to party because I'm here. And when I'm here, you can't do the things we used to because I'm God and I'm here. You have to celebrate because there's something going on that you cannot miss. Now, he does say, of course, that the celebration one day will stop. Because the bridegroom will be taken away. And when it happens, he says, then y'all going to need to fast. because It's going to be a very terrible time. That word taken in, uh, in the Greek is a very violent word. He's foreshadowing, of course, his crucifixion. But to put it bluntly, he's basically saying, your religion, your religious practices, your disciplines, your programs, your traditions are not important anymore. I, the bridegroom, the I am, the new wine is what matters most. And you cannot miss it. We as Christians who live on the other side of the resurrection, this is true. We cannot miss that we're here because Yahweh has come. That we live in an already-yet-not-yet yet type of world We indeed, where he's promised that he's going to come, that he's changed so many things, and we're waiting for a time where we will change everything. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. And then he says, because I change everything, then we need new wineskins. Now, a little lesson on winemaking. In those days, wine was made in animal skins. This is a more contemporary-looking picture, but you kind of get the idea. And when the wine, a.k.a. the grape juice that has been squished and squashed and all that kind of stuff, right, it gets poured into this wine skin, it will need time to age, to ferment, and to become actual tasty wine. Now, in the process, the wine emits gas and it expands which means that the skin that is holding it is also in need of expanding and flexing. It needs to become pliable so that it can go ahead and be and do what the wine is doing. Now, if you've ever made kimchi before, right? If you're not Korean, kimchi is the Korean traditional pickled fermented cabbage dish and we ferment everything called call it kimchi but anyways it's that idea if you've ever made kimchi or if you bought a new jar of kimchi from like H Mart and rather than eating from it because you already have an old jar of kimchi Korean people buy kimchi when there's like a third of the way or like a half full right because you know you can never run a kimchi that'd be a travesty right so when the old one is half full you go out and get a new one so you stick it in the fridge but you don't need it yet and so it just sits there if you let it sit there right without doing anything just completely close away it comes from the grocery store about four or five days it'll overflow with kimchi juice Your mom hates it, so they always put a paper towel underneath it just in case. And if you've ever opened it right at that time when you open it, it it actually releases again. It goes, it pops. And if you actually look at the water, the the juice, right, it it actually bubbles the very first time you open it. It's because all the gas in the fermentation is coming out. That's what's happening. Now, because wine skin is animal skin, once it's been used, it would dry out and look like this. I know the picture's a little grainy. I hope you can see it. But there's dry spots all over. That's not good wine skin. That is clearly a old one. And then once it gets old like that, it gets dry, rigid, tough, and just brittle. Which means then, if you put new wine in old skin so that you can reuse, save some money, whatever it is that your purpose, then as the wine expands, the skin will not handle the expansion and the flex and the gas, and then eventually it'll burst. So Jesus then says, no one puts new wine into old wineskins, skins because it'll ruin everything. New wine must be put into fresh Wineskin. Put it together and he's saying, I'm the new wine. And y'all are trying to put me into old wineskins. And he's saying, I don't really get it because you would never actually put regular wine, regular new wine into old wineskins because you don't want nothing bad to happen. And yet y'all are trying to do that with me. It ain't going to work. Don't you see? Now, before we get into any further about what Jesus is really saying, Let's kind of dig a little bit deeper into how the wine and the wineskins skins work together because it's very, very interesting. Jesus is making clear that there's a distinction between the wine and the wine skin. Wine is the primary, essential thing, and the wine skins are the secondary thing, and clearly secondary. In other words, wine skins are important and necessary only when wine is around because if there was no wine what is the point of having a wineskin it serves no purpose wine is primary wineskins are secondary you can't get that order mixed up if you further the analogy what jesus is saying is i am the wine the gospel is the wine the kingdom of god is the wine the holy spirit is the wine the life that comes from following me and knowing me is the wine and the wineskins are all your traditions your religious practices your programs and your structures for wineskins in our day, think worship style, think yags and smogs and the way that you do those. Think of the things that we recite, think of the prayer meetings, the Bible study, all these different types of things. It means that the wineskins, right, important. It means that the wineskins are the thing in this analogy that are impacted both by the wine and the, wo- and the world outside of it. The wineskins indeed need to expand with the wine as it grows and ferments and all those things, but also it needs to adapt and it will be impacted by the wine or the world around it. In this image, uh, I know on on those online, you probably can't see it, but as the wine pours into the wineskin, it's being impacted by the wine that's inside and then the world around the outside. For instance, if you had a wineskin here in Houston, it would react very differently to a wineskin in, I don't know, some really dry place. I don't know, pick one. A cold, dry place, right? It reacts and is different. You have to store the wineskins a little differently in our climate and here in Houston versus somewhere else. But here's the point. What has happened of late, especially in the modern church, is that we as the church have spent most of our energy trying to adapt to the pressures of the world and the ever-changing constant culture around us. We've spent a lot of our energy saying we gotta get more modern. Our space has to be more welcoming. It's gotta be hipster, but not too hipster, just a little bit hipster, right? We gotta see more contemporary songs, less hymns. Your language has to be more current. You have to shorten it. You gotta use a lot more audio and visual. You gotta do a lot more like six second Vine, TikTok, whatever. We gotta do these things to draw the audience in. You have to be relevant. That if you're not relevant, as you know, then basically what we're saying is if you're not relevant, ain't no one want to to listen to you and take you seriously. So we've spent a lot of our times trying to cater and make ourselves a, like, you know, approachable or adaptable or relevant, whatever word you want to use, to the world around us. Now what I'm not saying is that we shouldn't try to adapt or stay relevant. I'm not saying that, that these things aren't important. We're trying with all sorts of technology things. As you know, I put audio and visuals up in the beginning. I, if you, I don't know if you can... Imagine this, in the beginning it would be 40 minutes of just me talking with nothing. I, it's kind of terrible if you think about it. But now you have some things to look at for the audiovisual people and whatnot, right? Or not the audio, just the visual people. But what Jesus is saying is this. He's saying that we as a church, that we cannot bend and twist the gospel to fit the culture. But rather that the gospel must shape the culture. The culture cannot tell God, what to do, God must shape the culture around us. We have to ask ourselves, which one is doing the shaping, the gospel or the culture? A classic example that I use all the time is the one of Sabbath, especially with students, right? Our goal is to have the students do really well in school and they got to study and do all those things and get good grades. Again, I get all of that. And I'm not saying that is bad. But the Sabbath tells us that every Sabbath, once a week, six days of work, one day of rest, you should take that day to enjoy the Lord. But we push and push and push and say, We got to study because school's tomorrow or whatever. So now we've taken a cultural idea that is indeed important, but secondary, and we've made it more and we fit the gospel around it. Rather than saying, You know what? That's important, but the gospel is more important. And so, you know what? We're going to get all of our work done Monday through Saturday and then take Sunday as a full day of rest. Do you see? Or we the the church culture that says you need to look a certain way to be in here. And you take that so far, and then you make the gospel about excellence, not about dirty sinners who come in presence of a holy God. And then when somebody dirty or unfit or unkempt or whatever walk in here, we go, ooh, what's he doing? What's he doing? We've gotten it backwards. Are we incorporating bits of the culture to best present the gospel in its fullness? Are we repackaging the gospel and putting it into little forms here to fest, fit best into our paradigms and our culture wherever we can fit it in? And the answer, unfortunately, for most of us is that we've become captive to the culture, it seems. Now, you may say, Pete, the world is changing so fast. And if we don't change with it, we're going to get left in the dust. And I ask, really? Do we really think that? The church has been around forever. In so many different places, in so many different languages, really do we need to adapt so much that we lose who we are. But more importantly, what does Jesus say? According to Jesus and just the chemistry and the physics, what makes the wineskin burst? It's the wine, not the world. Have we forgotten as a church that yes, while the world does impact the wineskin and therefore the church, the pressure... That ought to concern us most is the pressure that's put on by the wine. So here it is. It means that even if the world exerted no pressure on us, even if the world did, never, did not change ever, that the wineskins will always have to constantly be changing and be new. Why? Because the wine is potent and it has to change us. The new wine is filled with so much energy and potency that any hard, dry, rigid, static, tight skin, no matter where you put it, no matter what culture, what, uh, what environment, right, what context you put it in, it will indeed burst. Here's what my professor says. He says, yes, churches die. They become irrelevant because they do not keep up with the changes of the world. But churches mostly die. They mostly become irrelevant because they do not keep up with the fermenting of the new wine. The challenge in our time is not due to the presence of the world. The challenge in our time is due to the pressure of the wine. The challenge is not to keep pace with the world, but the challenge is to keep pace with the fermenting of the wine. No wonder Jesus says, "Must new wine must be put in to new wineskins, or else?" You can phrase the question like this: Are our wineskins a means and a ways for enjoy, to enjoy the wine? something that helps us to enjoy a relationship with him, the new one, or have they become the end, the goal, or the point? When college students go away and they're looking for a church, I do tell them, no matter how great small groups are, no matter how great the worship team is, no matter how welcoming they may be, or whatever the case might be, if the church does not move based on the gospel, then don't go there. Ask yourself, what shapes this church? What moves this church? Does God's word actually shape everything that they do? Look for a church that gets the gospel right before all the other things. In the same vein, I would say we need to ask ourselves, are our wineskins, all the things that we do, ways and means for us to be in a better relationship with him and do what he's calling us to do? Are our wineskins, all the things that we do, do they help us to live out the true kingdom life to be filled and walking with the Spirit, to experience the deeply loved, deeply and changing love of God. We just went to the book of Ruth. What was the point of the book of Ruth? That they were redeemed? That they got their stuff or their life was better? Or that in the end, they got a name? They were known, they were loved. It's that they were known, that God of the universe would say, oh, Ruth, my daughter, rather than, wait, I don't. who are you again? And if our wineskins, don't miss this, are not allowing us to stay close to Jesus and live out the kingdom life, to be more and more alive in the spirit, to become more like him, then whatever is keeping us from that, all of our old wineskins, must be changed, period. No if ends or buts, end of the story. You have to do it or else. Because if you don't, then the wineskin will burst, which means then you will lose the wine. See, don't get it twisted now. The tragedy of this parable isn't that the wineskin bursts. Not primarily, no. It's that we lose the wine. We lose Jesus. I know, Jesus is this loving person. He is He's the most loving person you've ever met in the entire world. But he's real. is our prayer that we would never lose the wine. Oh, that we would never lose the wine. Because if you lose the wine, well, then you lose everything. So you can lose a structure. You can lose a program. You can lose a style. You can lose a building. But you cannot and you must not lose the bridegroom and the wine. Because without the bridegroom, there is no bride, which means there's no wedding which means there's no wine. And as you know, the church is the bride, which means there's no church. It's no wonder Jesus says we can't just take a new patch of cloth and fix up old clothes. He's saying, how can it be? If Jesus is ever growing in us, ask yourself this. If Jesus is ever growing in us, how is it that we think that we can continue to fit into the same old clothes over and over and over again? And when it's a little too tight, you can just put a new thing on it. It doesn't work. If you have kids, and my kids are growing like crazy. The pandemic is, you know, like what do they call it? Pandemic 15 or whatever. Like it's legit. Particularly my oldest child, he loves to eat right now. And one thing about all of this is that he's growing. And it's Clothes. I, so I bought him like so many new clothes over the pandemic because he don't fit none of the, He doesn't fit anything that he used to wear. But it'd be like trying to clothe my kids by never getting them anything new. Just being like, oh, those shorts are they a little short? I know it's okay. We'll just add. We'll, just, we'll get a big roll of fabric from Hobby Lobby and we'll just kind of put a little bit of extra down here so that it fits. Oh, that shirt don't fit. It's okay. We'll just we'll just we just stitch. I'll have mom stitch a little bit of here and then just just lengthen the shirt, lengthen the thing over here. Maybe it ain't gonna work. Because, you know, they're, they're like butts and their thighs and everything grows. And you can just lengthen stuff. You have to actually fit. Which means that if Jesus is truly alive in us, our growth ought to be like that of our children. You won't see it every day. But then one day, you look and you're like, yo. Or Eric Jung is sitting here. It's like Eric's haircut. He shaved it off. Then you don't know, you, yo, got a lot of mini-fro's going on around us. And for that, you need new clothes. Let me dispel a myth that should never exist in Christianity but does. In Christianity, there is no such thing as stagnancy. There are periods where you don't think fruit is happening, but there's always growth within Fruit comes in seasons, but for the fruit to come, the growth has to be happening on the inside all the time. Jesus is such that if you get a taste of him, you can't have less. You have to have more. He changes everything. The more and more you get closer to him, the more and more you become like him, you cannot not want more. And if you're not wanting more and drawing closer to Jesus, you will be pulled far away. You'll be pulled more and more away. You will backslide whatever word you want to use because Satan is not a joke and sin is legit. To me, God is like this infinitely deep well. You have a big old well. You can't see the bottom of it, and you want the water. Apparently, just imagine that the water a little deeper is is, is sweeter. It's colder or whatever, more refreshing. So you get a little bit deeper. You find a mechanism, and you build something. You're like, ooh, this is really great. So you get a little bit lower, and you get the water from deep within. You drink it. Oh, that's so refreshing. But every single time you do, you realize there's more and more and more deeper and fresher and more refreshing water, and there's never no end because he's God. God who has no end, the Alpha and the Omega, who cannot be created, who cannot finish, always and forever, God. Which means that there's infinite depth, infinite joy, infinite goodness, infinite love, infinite new wine to be enjoyed, which means that you, whatever thing you think you've hit, is not enough, because God is God. Which means in your life, as a Christian, as someone who's following Jesus, must forever and ever endeavor look more and more and more like him. That's why we say if our lives look more like the world around us and not like the Jesus who changes the world, then something is awry. So to finish, we're going to then ask two very critical questions that I think we really need to hear. And they're this. first is what does this new wine look like in our lives? What does it do? How do we know? And the second is what wineskins, old ones that is, do we need to get rid of? Now I'm gonna answer them in reverse order. And to be frank, I'm actually not gonna give you the list of things and old, new, old wineskins, not old new, old wineskins that you and I need to get rid of. One, because we don't have enough time, we would run out of time very quickly. But two, because I don't want this to be a thing where I give you a list of things for you to fix and then you go, I got to fix this, fix this, fix this. That's not what we're after. What I want is for you to go and taste the new wine and then move and act and react and follow the course that he sets for you. And then when all of us become more and more like him in the unique ways that we've called, then our church will be that which is needed in our city, in our state, and in the world. Go taste, and therefore see, as the psalmist says, this new wine. Now, as we finish, then what does it look like to have this new wine in our lives? A couple really easy ones. One is the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. I made a whole series on the Beatitudes, therefore we won't go over it here. And we did an entire 102 on the Sermon on the Mount, so we won't go into depth here. But are you growing to be more poor in your spirit? Do you mourn over the sins of the world or have you become numb to it? Do you seek righteousness, hunger and thirst after that which is right? The ways that everyone's supposed to be, the way they're meant to be. If you're a father, do you seek to be the kind of father you've been created to be? If you're a husband or a wife, do you seek that? That's righteousness, right? Right relatedness. Do you want peace? Not just peacekeeping, but peacemaking. Do you have transparency and purity in the soul because you have nothing to hide? In the Sermon on the Mount, are you going out and being salt, flavoring the world, preserving the world around you? Are you actually loving your enemies, praying for those who persecute you? You're not holding grudges anymore. You're not getting bitter and having resentment and then having these things. You're not cutting people off. You're forgiving them, even if it costs you your life because that's what Jesus calls us to. Is your life becoming more anxiety-free because as you draw closer to him, then indeed, he says, do not worry, You will have no anxiety. Are you producing good fruit just because that's what good trees do? And even when the storm and the rain fall, are you, because you're built on the rock, remaining standing rather than falling, just to name a few? For in Ephesians 5, when you're filled with the Spirit, we're naturally going to sing, make melodies, give thanks unto the Lord. We're going to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Husband and wives, you're going to love each other a certain way. Wives, you're going to submit to your husbands as you do to Jesus. And husbands, catch this, you will love your wives as Christ loved this church, a.k.a. even when your wife is the worst and most despicable person on the world, you will put your life on the line, die so that she can live. That's what happens when you're filled with the spirits. That's what new wine looks like. But because that can be a little Bible pushy, I want to go and look at, and I didn't do this even though I said it in the practice at 830. That I was going to get a picture. didn't do it. I'm going to read from J.I. Packer's Knowing God. It's a, one of the more famous books in all of uh, Christian thinking. Because he says it in a way that is so practical and so straightforward that you cannot really miss it. Now, the words won't be on the screen, so I want you to listen. If you're here in, uh, in the house, then you can close your eyes and just listen. If you're at home, again, you can do the same. Close your eyes and listen. But he puts it in such a way that is so just clear and again listen for this because this is pointing to the evidence that indeed we have the new wine not many of us i think would ever naturally say that we have known god the words knowing god imply a definiteness and a matter-of-factness of experience to which most of us if we are honest have to admit that we are still strangers we claim perhaps to have a testimony and can rattle off our conversion story with the best of them we say that we know God. This, after all, is what evangelicals are expected to say. But would it occur to us to say, without hesitation, and with reference to particular events in our personal history, that we have known God? I doubt it. For I suspect that with most of us, experience of God has never become so vivid as that. It's like when people say, who is God to you? You just, oh. All this stuff flooding with just your goodness of the experience of God. Nor, I think, would many of us ever naturally say that in the light of the knowledge of God which we have come to enjoy, that past disappointments and present heartbreaks, as the world counts heartbreaks, don't matter. Let me read that again. Nor, I think, would many of us ever naturally say that in the light of the knowledge of God, which we have come to enjoy, past disappointments and present heartaches, as the world has come to know them, do not matter. For the plain fact is that most of us, to most of us, they do matter. We live with them as our crosses, so we call them. Constantly find ourselves slipping into bitterness and apathy and gloom as we reflect on them, which we frequently do. The attitude we show to the world is a sort of dried-up stoicism. If you don't know what stoicism is, it's like this cool-as-the-other-side-of-the-pillow-like-I'm-good-nothing-bothers-me like like kind of attitude. The attitude we show to the world is a dried-up stoicism, miles removed from the joy unspeakable and full of glory which Peter took for granted that his readers were displaying in 1 Peter 1.8. Poor souls, our friends say of us, how they've suffered, and that is just what we feel about ourselves. But these private mock heroics have no place at all in the minds of those who really know God. Because they never brood on might have beens. They never think of things they have missed. Only of what they have gained. Which of course is the new wine. Then he goes on to say, That you can know a lot about God without knowing him. And you can know a lot about being godly like a Pharisee without knowing him. And then he finishes off like this. The question is, then, can we Christians say, simply, honestly, not because we feel that as evangelicals that we ought to, but because it is a plain matter of fact. Like I say, two plus two is four. That we have known God. And that because we have known God, the unpleasantness we have had or the pleasantness we have not had through being Christians does not matter to us. My translation is to say, how are you doing in the midst of this pandemic? we have God. And even if I were to die today, I still have God. But the over 100,000 people in the United States that have died and the many more in the world, I don't know how many of them indeed have that security. So then he finishes, and this is where we finish, with how we can measure to look at practical evidence that we actually know God the way that he described that I just read for you. Which is to say then, if you cannot say, or even better, if the people around you who are going to keep it 100, keep it real with you, cannot say these things we're about to discuss about you, then whatever you got going on in your life, that's Christian, got to change. Period. That goes from me and Pastor Goose, as pastors, all the way down to the littlest ones, our children. So I challenge you, go find the people that are going to keep it 100 with you, that know and see if they will attest to this, these evidences that we're about to go. So that then you will know what wineskins must be replaced with fresh ones. So here are the evidence. The first is that people who know God have a great energy about God. Because you know God, you have to live it out. you got to do something. you got to let other people know. J.I. Packer points to the story of Daniel when he's told that he cannot worship God, but he's only got to worship the king. And so do you know what he does? He goes into his home. He opens the window that points to the city so everyone can hear him and shouts the prayers to the Lord three times a day. So that nobody would ever get it twisted that he's doing exactly what he was told not to do. Hmm. Pastor Goose prayed about it earlier. The world is going crazy. Our country is going crazy right now. The racism and, the, and just, 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 the, just the injustice is unthinkable what does your heart do when you hear about George Floyd? What does your heart do when you hear about Ahmaud Arbery and the rest, so many others to count, and the racism that is rampant everywhere? What does your heart do when you hear that people are looting and setting things on fire? Some people, some person died in the riots in Minnesota, apparently. What does your heart do? Because if, if you know God, you have this energy that you've got to do something to make God known. Doesn't mean they have to go riot. Doesn't mean they have to go protest. But you got to do something if God is alive in you. Cannot stand just idly by. Because someone lost a brother. Someone lost a son. Someone lost a. And their life will never be the same. And I don't know if, if those people know God and therefore are where they should be, which is with God in eternity. Can't stand by. So you have a great energy about God. And the second thing that you'll see is that you have great thoughts about God. Your minds are filled with the greatness and the glory of God. I know, I said it before, this pandemic is difficult. I get that. But for those of us who have Christ, who know Christ, who have the new wine, are our minds, our prayers, and our attitudes filled with the ever amazing and unthinkable and unfathomable glory of God that we sing his praises day in and day out. When Daniel was being threatened, his mind wasn't looking at what would happen to him. His mind was filled with the glory of who God was and wanted to make it ever more known because that's what's on his heart. No matter what your struggles are, and we have many, I understand, are your thoughts still flooded because you know that the God of the universe knows your name. The famous people of the world probably don't know who you are. You are nothing to them. But the Lord and the God of the universe knows your name, knows the number of hairs on your head. You are important and you matter to him. That's why every lament psalm, though in the words in the beginning of the lament psalms, they're, they're, they're real. They don't, they don't hold back. But at the end, every lament psalm ends with thanksgiving and praise. Why? Because they are lamenting to God. And then thirdly, there's great boldness for God. Daniel's three friends They knew they were going to get thrown into the fire because they wouldn't worship anyone else but God. And right before they go into the fire, they say, God will be with us. He's going to protect us. And then they say this. Don't miss it. But even if he does not protect us, we will not worship no one else but our God. Because we have him. As a Christian, you're going to be called to difficult things, make difficult choices, things that indeed might hurt. But once you know that this is the way to go, that this is the way God wants you to move, that is indeed of him, then will you, as a theologian says, smilingly wipe your hands of the consequences and then go. Hmm. A new wine cannot be put into old wineskins. If Jesus is a new wine, we cannot look the same after this pandemic coming out. It ain't possible, cannot be, will not be. I hope you pray. So you gotta ask yourself. You gotta ask us as a church, as I invite John and the praise team up. How potent is this new wine in us? And don't miss this now. This is the most important part. Wine has always and forever will be a celebratory thing. It's why you get the best and most expensive bottle of wine at the most and best dinner and occasion because it's to be celebrated. And wine, for those of you who are of age, when you drink wine and you drink the best wine, my Lord, it is so good. Is this how we feel about the new wine? like the host at the wedding in Cana when the new wine comes out after all the old wine have been drunk. And he goes, what are you doing? Where is this? Where are you? Why were you saving this? Where did this come from? This is the best thing I've ever tasted in my entire life. And Jesus doesn't make a bottle. He makes 180 gallons of it, so much more than they would ever need because he is a God of abundance. He is a God of the new wine. He's a God of life and fullness. Is that what we're after, church? So will you, I invite Look to the new wine. Say, fill me, new wine. Change my life, transform it, make it something utterly new. Because I'm not satisfied, nor will I take living the old. And will you pray? Though it is difficult, will you take the new, I mean, the old wineskins that you know of? The things that you're holding on to, your idols. And when you say, this is going to change, God. Give me new wineskins. And I promise if we as a church do, then we will walk through this pandemic sheltered in the wings of refuge, flying high on the wings of eagles. And God will be exalted. And the world will know that he is God and he is good. So we take a moment to pray? And then I'm going to pray for the offering. And then after we pray for the offering, we'll ask the praise team to lead us out. So will you take a moment and pray? And then again, I'll pray for the offering. And then we'll ask the praise seem to lead us out. Let's pray together and respond. be praised for you are ever worthy of our praises for there is no one like you no one who was and is and is to come holy be your name help us that though we are sinful and wretched that you would fill us with a desire to want to more and more of the filling of the new wine. That we would then have the humility to take everything about our lives and change it so that indeed it can and will grow and hold this new wine so that we and the world can enjoy it to its fullness from now on to eternity. Help us not to be satisfied with all the things that we've done but know that there's ever so much more and that we would want it, fill us with such desire. Help us, Lord, to always know that you are the provider, you are the sovereign one, you are the one who gives all to us, and therefore we would return everything back unto you, even and in particular with our tithe and our offering, that we would say, this is yours, you can have it, all of it, God, and that you would do with it so much more than we could ever dream of. May we see your glory in the things that you do, with that which give unto you our prayers, our time, our resources. And we offer it to you. And in turn, may we, as Paul says, offer our bodies, all of us as living sacrifices that you would do unfathomable things to the praise of your name. So Lord, help us, be with us, fill us, and help this life, this new wine, pour out of us, filling the world with your spirit and your goodness, that you may be praised forever. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Would you rise and join us as we sing and close in worship?